legendary performance from one of the favorite cinemas of all time. I think we're agreed. Yes? Yes? All right. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and bring them out. We've got a little bit of flexibility, and we want to make sure that we have plenty of audience questions. I've got plenty of them of my own. But without further ado, let's go ahead and bring them out together. The two, the only, Keir DeLay and Gary Lockwood. see a film uh, about a prisoner of war camp during the Second World War called Stalag 17? Any of you? Well, do you remember the Nazi commandant of that camp? That was Otto Preminger on a nice day. Anyway, so I was working doing this film called Benny Lake is Missing, and I had the afternoon off. And I said, no, no, I didn't need the afternoon off. I just came home one night after 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 shooting, and my wife said, call your agent. So I called my agent, he said, you're sitting down? And I said, why? He said, you better sit down. I said, why? You've just been offered the lead in Stanley Kubrick's next film. And he was right, I fell off my chair. So that's where I was on that. Thank you. 
told Gary earlier, I said he's walking into his crowd. He didn't believe me. You guys are crowd, man.
those whom you don't know, and strengthen your only self with the finding of the mind of that Hamun that's been coming to you. That's the oral process. That means that is the germ that's, that's been planted 2,000 years ago inside of you. And that was your germ that picked up the next one, next one, next one. And so it's like that. So when you have the same question, you can kind of like use the question. I was a football player. Sci-fi was not as you didn't have to be a sci sci-fi to read sci-fi even for kids. I had friends who, when I would try to pick them up and get them to read the books, we lived on the ship that was going to Taiwan, and one of my buddies was a big sci-fi fan. He loved it. He was still my friend. He lived down there in Florida. Yeah. 
trying to think of what it was I wanted to say. <coughs> I tell you, another little story out of a boastful life. Um, there wasn't a lot of dialogue in this church, and it was even less, I think, of an exception to do with it. Um, it was a, almost a totally visual experience. Yeah, we know that church pretty well, the Baptist. Um, but one of the longest speeches I had in the church was a communication with missions in Florida. Very difficult to memorize because it was technological gobbledygook, and it was like learning a foreign language. So I went over and over and over for weeks, and uh, I finally memorized it, and we shot it. Later on, in editing the film, Stanley decided that it was redundant. It was too similar to another scene where he misses the church because of the egg, so he never used it. But because of the way I had to memorize it, with me to this day. And it went like this. <coughs> Under the control of Professor O'Gregor, at 19020 on board Paul Pedersen's cruiser, and our 9070 cruiser, show Alpha Echo 35 unit is possible thing within 48 hours. Request check your in-ship system simulator. Also confirm your approval our plan to bring you to a replace Alpha Echo 35 unit prior to burn. Mission control, this is X-ray Delta 1. Mission completed. And now I do re now I do remember what it was I wanted to talk about, and that is one of the big questions we get a lot, as you can imagine, is what does this film mean? That's a very common question, and I just recently <laughs> read a one. That's how Gary feels about it. read uh, a recent book by Michael Benson. <coughs> you read a book that tells you how this film and what it was really like, and not just to our section, but from the time that Stanley Kubrick decided that, it, that the sensitive would make a good movie, and he <coughs> and Arthur C. Clarke got together right up through the release of this movie four or five years later. Get a book by Michael Benson. It's a 400-page book, and I couldn't put it down. I literally could not put it down, and I learned so much about this film that I didn't know anything about. And I think it's called How to Seriously Make Your Own Movie. Based on this book. You know it. Okay. It's brilliant. Thank you. But what I want to talk about is that it, it talks about some of the answers that Stanley gave in there when he was questioned about the film. And my favorite is very simple. It's trying to explain what does this film mean? How do you explain? Beethoven symphony in words. What is there an answer to that question? No, there isn't. Why? Each person who hears a piece of music has their own particular reception to it depending on who they are. We all have a different gut that way. And a perfect illustration of that, you don't have to talk about a Beethoven symphony. <coughs> the Blue Daniels that was used in the film for the docking of the <coughs> of the ship into the space station, if somebody who'd never heard of 2001 in Space Odyssey was asked about the, were asked what does the Blue Danube mean, they would never come up with something to do with space. They would come up with Vienna or something else. So that what this film is, it is a visual symphony that every human being that watches the film has a slightly different response. And the fact that there was a nun in one of the 
with the last shot of the camera is a platform, and I'm standing on that, ready, ready to dive headfirst toward the camera, which is way down here. There was a circus roustabout who had measured the drop, and he because there was a rope attached to a, a cable, which was attached to a harness underneath my spacesuit. And of course, my body is between the two sides, and uh, where I enter, so he couldn't see that that cable. But the cable was woven into a rope, so he measured the drop, and then he tied a huge knot. He measured it again, the same length, and tied a second knot. So on action, which Stanley said action, I dove headfirst, free fall, toward the camera. I'm going in slow motion now, but I was full speed. He waited till the knot reached his gloved hand. He's way up there. As soon as the knot reached his hands, he jumped off, and he went hurling toward the ground. I went hurling back up to the ceiling again. As soon as the second knot reached his hand, same thing. He let go again, waiting for the second knot, and I went hurtling back toward the camera. And that's how that camera came up. Forty should have got an extra 50 bucks. We, <laughs> we got that in one take, thank God. And why couldn't we use a stuntman? Well, if you remember, in my hurry to try to save his life, I had forgotten my hammer. So they had to use me. Wow. This is just a little thing I want to tell you. It's normally something that kids would tell you, but they go in depth on this. Just to kind of give you an insight into how clever people really was. You remember on the space station, what is that? station just before uh, Floyd, Dr. Floyd, uh, is stopped by some Russian scientists sitting there, and he sits down and has a dialogue with them. Of course, they're trying to find out what his purpose for the, for the voyage is, and he's not sharing the fact that they found a monitor. But anyway, there are three women scientists and one man scientist, one man speaking to him. But on his way to that, there's a voice that you can hardly hear. It's over a public address receiver. It's from Boston Public Broadcast Service. Apparently, the voice was unknown. What did he just say? Well, one of the non-speaking Russian women who are sitting there has a blue sweater over the back of her chair. But the, when the camera angle was changed for a different angle on the shot, no blue sweater. The continuity to replace the sweater so that you don't get it. Well, Stanley, talk about the eye he had in editing it. He couldn't go back and shoot it. Those days of shooting were long past. He was just in the editing room. He saw that the blue sweater was not there in one little tiny shot. So that little dialogue that I said, as the scientist is talking, there's this voiceover, the public address system saying very quietly, the blue sweater go to the Boston Public Receiver to get that. That's how pretty Stanley was. So in the middle of all this science fiction high intelligence, all these types of people that went together, simple little guy like Mr. Stanley comes up with this. I have to say one thing on that. The security down the hall, the man who walks up with the camera, was pretty cool. Had a guy named Dan who had bad teeth, and 
poker when I was a kid. And and uh, hey Gary, Herbrick was a great Gary. poker player. Did you know that? To none. pull up they're trying to get to a place that was like a mission to me right so so I'm out in the country and I went out to some pub somewhere to eat and so I'm driving back and it's England with all these little prairie fields within that five hundred meters and you can get lost rather easily. So I'm lost and I pull up in this little mini cooper. There must be two cops, a hoe and bees on the side of the road. So I look at the one and they both look like they're just completely Excuse me, mate. Yeah. I said, uh, could you tell me how to get back to Portland to the studio? Oh, oh, that's all. Okay, sure. You know, uh, since the last time I last took you, you have to understand, I guess you think not everybody doesn't sound like Mike Tyson. There's 500. It's like the Philippines with the dollar. There's 500 dialects in there. You never know who you're talking to. And he goes, can you say my name? You say that my name. You say my name. You say my name. I go, thanks. doing that accent reminds me of <coughs> uh, Mark Connolly wasn't sure what the voice of God should be. And <coughs> he first was going to work with an actor by the name of Martin Bolton, but then he thought he was too young to do that. Then he hired a British actor by the name of Michael Davenport. He was on the set with us first. No, he never had him. He had, he had Then Michael Davenport was on the set with us, and he's British. He only lasted a, a week. Sounded here last night. Too British. Oh, worry about it in post-production. And in post-production, we had extraordinary Canadian actor Douglas Lane, who, uh, although he's not well known in America, he was the large Olivier of Canada. He had all was known for doing all the great Shakespearean roles. But he worked with Hugh Miller and Martin Luther King. He did the voice of Howard. Worked only two days in the film. And um, anyway. voice of hell. That's your casting. I'm sorry, dear. I can't blow the bloody door. Well, I'm sorry. 
Sorry, guys, I cannot join. Daisy, Daisy, give me a rhyme for true.
that I saw a prophet in the night just take some altar staff in my head and really synthesize what was going down with something specific. And I said, well, what else could there be besides a prophet? So I keep writing and I keep getting more confirming thoughts, including this gentleman. I'm going to call him out. He's got a name for him. Bill Lear once told me it was a nickname that he had. And I've asked a lot of famous people that question that, but it happens to be me. You never gave us that line either, ever. I have a theory about great directors. Great, great directors, among all of the other things necessary for the film director, or even theater directors, great directors cast greatly. What do I mean by that? If you cast greatly, you don't have to do it with directors of the theater. Both, there were a lot of takes. Well, either Kubrick is being a total asshole, or, sorry, sometimes you've got to use the word 
guy that's being a real dickhead. You better. <laughs> these are scientific terms. These are yeah. these are very that precise call scientific a, terms. That was called a fast rally. Yeah. And it was either being weird, but or there was some difference. But it, thirty-five takes, he let us go, and I never could really figure out what what part of it was BS and what part of it was being a, a normal. But I I just wanted to say that working with him was such a pleasure always. And he never raised his voice. He was calm. He was open to suggestions. He didn't necessarily need to use them, but he was open to them. He never felt he was trapped in his ways. Uh, it was a pleasure every minute. I, I admired this man tremendously. Can't live and learn at any level. This video was set up on the computer that I was trying to figure out how you set it up and how to watch it. Uh, 
Is Floyd is speaking to his daughter? Is is that Skyping? Then let's Skype and we can even hear each other. We have iPads, little pads just like we have today, and we're being interviewed by the BBC, and we're watching ourselves being interviewed on these iPads. And uh, it's just you know, I think he he made a lot of clever because he had great advice from a lot of different official sources like NASA. NASA, he had some of the top NASA scientists working with him full time. So I think I think the chances of a lot that we watch, maybe we haven't achieved it all. Maybe in some cases we've gone beyond. It's it's amazing what has been predicted. Christopher Nolan, Soderbergh, all these guys who had big titles because they were halfway decent men, all come out. Yeah, one or two. Hey, it's my from my eye to your brain. I've seen this stuff. I mean, come on, Christopher Nolan is one of them. That guy's Cooper for men. I know they like to jump in the brook. The point that I'm trying to make is that everybody sees something think they know more than everybody else and they're critics about it or they have opinions about it. But we could do that over a car. I could give you a Ford Fusion. I can give you a hybrid uh, Prius. If you had, I mean, I could give you a Tesla. And everybody in the planet will give you 5,000 reasons about why this is better and they don't even know how anything in the car works. Isn't that true? You ever heard somebody look at you and, you know, he's, a, he's an accountant been in a shop in his life, and they'll go, oh, I always buy Chrysler. They're the best car there is, you know. They don't know one goddamn thing about how the Chrysler, they're not engineers. If you want to find out something, go to an engineer and ask him, right? Or call Elon Musk. Maybe if you can get on the line with him, he'll give you some great info. Anyway, I'll rest my case. Yeah, so, so color, me, color me not shocked that uh, with the guy that Al wrong, but I mean, I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't write the script. Here, I'm, uh, I'm curious on, on, uh, on, on TV, what, what do you think will happen with the show, with the way it's either tuning in, malfunctioning, or whether he will find a way to do that show in addition to the reality programming given to the players to does that sound? I was sitting in Arizona with a whole bunch of astronauts. I said, Stu and I spent time together. He asked me about the Columbus astronauts. I said, do they? Because he asked me, it's all direct to that and that and their, their kinship and spirit. So I was, <laughs> I was in Arizona one time in this beautiful resort with about 15 astronauts. Now the astronauts were cowboys, scientists, 
They know how to run a car. They know how to fly a ship. They're a little bit of everything, and they are probably the most interesting people in our society overall. You know what I'm saying? Kind of athletic, kind of high IQ. They're, they're a different cut of people. And one of these guys came up to me, and I can't say names, but I'm sorry for my past, and said to one of the astronauts, and we were all drinking, and he said, hey, man, do you think Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing? And the astronaut got up and decked the guy right there. Boom! And the guy was gone.
yeah, oh yeah. It was a very pleasant experience. It wasn't, I can't say it was the kind of challenge that I, in, in 2001, I knew the role pretty well. I, I didn't really have to work on it. You know, I remembered what the experience was like and I was able to, uh, to do it again. The only difference, one of the main difference was is that the old age makeup in 2010 only took six hours, whereas in 2001, it took 12 hours. Last question. First of all, thank you both for your time and your generous gift. I know I took some of your original time. Thank you. And this question is actually for Gary, and I'm asking for a friend of mine who's getting ready to learn. Uh, you were in an Elvis movie, correct? Sorry? You were in an Elvis movie? I don't know. <laughs> I was going to ask you what it was like I'll working I'll with the king. Doing a movie with him, and I was chatting up Captain Crocker, uh, Stone Crocker's daughter. And 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 the Elvis has the Memphis Mafia, the bodyguards, and they were all out throwing a football. And I'm, you know, I was a quarterback, you know, the guy who throws the ball. I was a kid, and the ball bounced at Captain's feet, Crocker, and all these rednecks were about 20 yards away from me. And I said, I have five <laughs> to one of the one of the redneck guys. Sunday. How many of you have, have gone to see these recorders already? Only a few of you? Shame on you all. Shame on you all. So you've got to go and see these guys on cable and have a chat with them and get to see how they But bring cash, man. I don't want to go home and <laughs> I don't want to go home and have to have my wife go, you got to pay taxes on the PayPal. Now, hey, uh, you guys have been a wonderful audience. Yeah. Thank you. Now you really have. Thank you. And when when the uh, when the seventieth or the the, uh, the seventy millimeter fiftieth anniversary uh, print of two thousand one makes its way to Orlando, Mr. Warner Brothers, go and see it. If you haven't seen it on seventy millimeter, you have not seen this picture. Let's hear it one more time for Kier Delay and Gary Lockwood.